Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, the ho, all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy, Ron Dawson, coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the worlds of film and television. And today, I'm pleased to have on the show... My good friend and colleague in this industry, Lydia Hurlbut. Now, Lydia is the CEO and co-founder of Filmmakers Academy and Hurlbut Visuals. And I had the opportunity to first meet her, man, I want to say like a dozen years ago. There was this big event that Shane was holding. Um, Shane Hurlbut, her husband, famed cinematographer of feature films. And at the time... The DSLR revolution was still kind of um, blooming and exploiting, and there was a lot of new equipment coming out to make it easier for filmmakers to use DSLRs, and Shane was coming out with a new product line. So he invited a bunch of influencers and filmmakers in the industry uh, to come out and check it out. And you know, I had an opportunity to meet people like Ryan Connolly from um, FilmRight fame and Freddie W. of Rocket Jump Film School, uh, and he had all these other kind of podcasters and filmmakers. Vincent LaFerre was even there, and we had an opportunity to, to see all this new cool equipment that Shane was putting out. And like on the first night, I think they had a um, like a dinner for everyone, and I had the pleasure of being able to sit next to Lydia, and we get to know each other, and she's just a lovely person, and uh, I just love the kind of work that she's doing. And she talks about in this interview, you know, what it's like, you know, for her being a woman in this industry and when the challenges for her, you know, coming out from under the shadow of her husband, who was obviously a lot um, more known in the filmmaking world than she was to run this company, to grow it to where it's become, you know, teaching people all over the world and working with amazing mentors and other artists, um, in this filmmakers academy, we had an opportunity to talk about you know women in the industry, the kind of work that they're doing, education in the filmmaking world, and how that's evolved. We talk about the streaming business, the binging model versus the drip out model. You know whether or not film schools are still good, and there's some great information and insight she gives about you if you're a filmmaker, what it takes to be successful in the business. And remembering that it is a business and how you need to look at yourself. And so I think you're going to find this an insightful and informative interview that's going to light a fire under your ass to get out there and do what you need to do in order to be success at this craft and career of being a filmmaker. So uh, enough of my babbling. Without further ado, here's my interview with Lydia Hurlbut, CEO of Filmmakers Academy and Hurlbut Visuals. See you on the other side. Well, I'm glad you were able to have the time to do this because um, this will probably be like the penultimate episode of this season. So I did I did a, a year of episodes, a sort of like 
brought this podcast out of mothballs because it's been a year since I've done Crossing the 180, which is sort of like this one-on-one type of interview show. Right. I think I I think I originally did it from 2010 to 2012, and then in 2015 I did my radio film school podcast. I did that for a couple of years, and um, and then Pro Video Coalition wanted to sort of like revamp their podcast strategy and. So this show was edited as one of their shows in their sort of repertoire of podcasts. So I'm glad to have you. And so here's, so I did something interesting this year. Okay. Which okay. was, uh, and, and I've talked about this a couple of times, but I've told the story a couple of times um, of how on my radio film school podcast, when I had originally put out like a trailer for it, um, like I was really proud of it. And I remember getting this email from this woman filmmaker who said, Ron, I like your trailer. It sounds really cool. But you realize there's no women in your trailer. And I'm like, really? And I go back and listen to it. And she was right. Like there were no women in the trailer. And it wasn't something like I tried to do. I didn't like purposefully set out to not have any women filmmakers. But it was just like a natural thing where a majority of the right. people were interviewing were men. And so, you know, this year I wanted to have all of my guests on the show be um, be filmmakers who who were part of a non-majority group. So either women or a person of color or a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, because I feel like there were so many years, like during my radio film school days where except for a couple of times where I specifically did like a women in filmmaking thing where it was just easy for everyone on my show, frankly, just be a straight white man, which, and I and like to say this, no offense to straight white men out there who are listening because like, I get it. I think sometimes you can feel like you're under attack and that's not what I'm doing at all with my show. Like I don't want, the straight cisgender white men who listen to the show to feel like I don't care about them as filmmakers or whatnot. But I just, in so many podcasts and shows I see, um, I mean, we just had, I, you know what I'm saying? Like we I just, was going to say, yeah, yeah, you're just, you're expanding, you're broadening. Yes. And yes. I think that that is not to the exclusion of anybody, right? You're literally right. just, just broadening out and, and giving the microphone literally to a variety of voices. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think, you know, as of this recording, we just had the most recent Oscars a couple of months ago. The third woman in the history of the Oscars won Best Director. Um, and I think before that, there was a couple of years when Chloe Zhao won. But before that, yeah. it had been 10 plus years. Um, and so... When you think about the, even in the industry today, there's still this, you know, this um, this gap. And I'm just curious, you know, for you as a as a woman who's a CEO of this, uh, you know, filmmaking related organization, what has the experience been like for you? Has this been something that you've come across in your years of doing this, and how have you dealt with it? Well. It's very interesting you bring that up, uh, Ron, because I think 
I, first of all, I love your questions because mm -hmm. they always make me really think sure. um, on a very deep level. And so thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I was seen as Shane's wife for the longest time mm. and not a businesswoman in my own right. And um, so that was challenging because everybody deferred to Shane. For those of you that don't know, my husband, Shane Hurlbut, is a, a cinematographer who shoots feature films. And people just saw me as Shane's wife kind of doing things. And I almost felt like Oz behind the curtain in a strange way because <laughs> I was negotiating the deals. I was doing all the business. In our business relationship, and for those of you that happen to work with your spouse, um, it's very important to define roles mm. and to have those very clear um, just so you're not constantly stepping on each other's toes, especially if you're both strong personalities. And I would say that Shane and I are both very strong personalities. And so um, we each have our crystal clear area that we're responsible for. And mine was always the business part. Shane was always the creative. Um, I, I don't have a degree in film. I am a critical care forensic nurse, Reiki trained <laughs> person. Okay. And I studied business and marketing um, from a third generation entrepreneur, Christiana Holbrook. And I'm purely self-taught. And um, so I think after I got past the wife and really we launched membership um so we started in 2009 and then we originally did much more content based um, we had our free blog and then as you know we did the boot camp and it, the hdslr boot camp in 2010 and then we did the last three minutes short and then the ticket and I was executive producer on both of those and actually negotiated a lot for that. So then all of a sudden I was on IMDb, which gave me more credibility in the industry. Um, and then in 2014, we launched our original membership, which was Shane's Inner Circle. And so I think by that point, um, people felt more comfortable with me, but I think I really was up against maybe a lot more because Shane and I, than the average person, because I didn't have the, the film history and Shane and I created a business together and happened to be husband and wife. So I think for women, um, it's interesting because I feel as though more opportunities exist for women of color, for women of different backgrounds, for um, just in general than used to. I think it, it was much more formulaic mm -hmm. in the film industry yeah. with a certain person in the lead and so-and-so was going to direct and it was at a certain budget and they were always looking for a magic in the bottle, right? With this formula. I think that that, that has changed and because that has changed, I think options have opened up. It still feels forced in certain ways, truthfully, and I would like it to feel natural and in flow. So it really becomes about, the exciting part to me is that it's about the authentic voice, mm. that it is about raw talent being showcased. 
And I think that I would love women and everybody of all races, creeds, color, genders, everything to have the opportunity to tell their story. And I think that um, we have really tried um, because the world is diverse. The world looks different and people have to identify themselves with the world, the globe that we're, we're living on. And we've always been a global business. And so um, we have really tried to offer mentorship opportunities. Now in the third iteration of our educational brand, the Filmmakers Academy, I am absolutely committed to having um, diversity and I can get into more of that later. I don't know where you want your question to go. And no, I feel no. like I'm giving a long answer. <laughs> no, no, I think that's good. I mean, you said something where I felt that I found interesting. You said it still feels forced. What, what did you mean when you said that? Like what feels forced exactly? I think um, that there's kind of forced opportunity right now instead mm -hmm. of, you know, like we should have a certain percentage of whatever that looks like, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's a diversity in gender. I think it's just everybody's kind of trying to, you know, come up with we should have a per certain percentage. And everything that I've read, it, it's, you know, I don't know, anywhere from 25 to 35 percent, depending upon the role. I think um, I'm really comfortable speaking from my lens, and I'm very careful not to overgeneralize. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the the opportunities that abound right now, it's about time, and thank goodness. And I would like to see a lot more of them. Um, what what we are doing is creating opportunities for. Um, a variety of people to become talented instructors on our platform. And I'm also working, and I'm very excited about this, um, with the Academy Gold Rising program um, as an official partner. And so this is com committed to diversity and inclusivity. And we are having an intern um, for this summer. So that's, again, I feel very comfortable in the ways that we personally are rolling this out. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something that I'm very excited about. But I think mentoring is the one area that is so necessary. And that's something that we have been committed to um, for everybody to see and to have access to somebody that is an expert in their field whether it's cinematography, editorial, producing. Um, on Filmmakers Academy, we are building out um, because this was a rebrand from the Hurlbut Academy. So I'm very excited right. to say that we are helping filmmakers around the world, you know, really um, enhance their creativity through understanding the fundamentals of what you need to have set success and to, you know, really expand their careers. And a big part of that is mentoring. And mm. that's something that we've been doing since 2010. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about mentoring because, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for so many years in filmmaking, that was how you learned filmmaking. Like 
you know, in the early in the early years of filmmaking, like you didn't go to film school. You had a mentor. You worked under the tutelage of of somebody, yeah. and, and that's how how you broke in. And so, having you bring it full circle is really interesting. And so. Go ahead. You were going to comment? No, I was going to say, I think a lot of those original kind of apprenticeship opportunities have right. gone away. Yeah, they and have. And so we we recognize the importance of that. And also, obviously, there are a variety of ways to mentor. Um, we have a lot of, uh, you know, free mentoring on our Facebook group and, and just um, people giving advice to one another, members, or it, it's what I love about the learning platform is it can be top down or mm -hmm. it can be peer to peer. And we really have both, which is very exciting. But let's say that you have a very specific project and you really want to, for example, pick David Cole, who's a colorist that did Dune and the Batman. And we are blessed to collaborate with Dave. Um, he could reserve a time for you on our platform that is separate from membership where you could just say, okay, Dave Cole, I really want to pick your brilliant brain on coloring and help have you help me with my project. Yeah. So that is, and I am particularly um, excited, not only about the quality of the instructors that we have, but um, the, the diversity of mm. instructors and that's going to continue to expand and grow and so it's not just people from the united states right. so we we have gabrielle blackwood who i'm very excited um is going to be talking about a variety of things with both directing and um, cinematography and her coloring with black skin tone coming up wow. and so it's it's really um she's developed special LUTs. And so in seeking mentors for our platform and, and educating mentors, we're really looking for diversity and, and a very high level of experience so that we can stay within our brand um, to meet the needs of those that are more experienced. And I think when you serve kind of a diverse market, it's important to um, get the foundations and the theory solid and that way, people understand how to break the rules and develop their own unique creativity in their artistry. Yeah. What would you, what is your th uh, thought about whether or not film school as a formal institution is needed anymore? <laughs> That's a tricky one, Ron. I uh, sure. Um, it okay. What is film school? teach you and and we always support film school i i view mm -hmm. a platform like ours as kind of an adjunct to film school because mm. i think it's very dangerous to say that that it's not necessary yeah what i know to be true is that everyone um has a unique style of learning and they they learn in a variety of ways, you know, uh, right. auditory, tactile, especially filmmaking, obviously very visual, very hands-on. Film school uh, teaches you about yourself, teaches you foundational theory, teach, you know, lets you practice with hands-on projects. It, it encourages you to work as a group and become a leader. 
and everybody has a, a senior project from what I understand or a variety of projects that they have to do to complete the curriculum. I think it kind of um, certifies you on a basic level as you know, you have been trained and learned so many hours of filmmaking. Um, I think where plat other platforms come in or something like what we offer is that we give you everything for on set success that you don't necessarily get in film school right. because this has been people practicing in the field for 20 or 25 years. And it's, they've taken everything that they've learned and condensed it down in a way that's fun and exciting to learn, or at least we do our very best to do that. And so I think it's really a combination of both. And this is our goal is to save you the years of trial and error and time and not necessarily to say that we're replacing anything, just right. to view it as an add-on for lifelong education. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I resonate with your comment about the different styles of learning that people have. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I'll just speak for myself, but like whenever people ask me, hey, Ron, do you think film schools still need it? Like there's a part of me that answers very matter-of-factly with a no like do you need to like again speaking for myself do you need to go to film school in order to learn how to be a filmmaker unequivocally no like there's um, resources like yourself like filmmaker academy youtube there's all these kind of resources online to just going out and doing it and whatnot you know my son who's 17 now he makes a bunch of films he's never gone to film school i mean he had a dad who was a filmmaker so maybe that doesn't <laughs> really count um exactly right. i think he's got a leg up <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> but i will say but when i think about the experience of when i went to um i didn't go to like a four-year film school like my undergraduate degree was in business but after i graduated from berkeley i took film courses at a business at a film school and you know i was enrolled full-time but it was something that i took and you know, there is something about that classroom experience. There is something about um, learning in that kind of um, structured way. Um, when I went through the program, I went to this thing called Filmmaker's Workshop, where each, I think it was a quarter system. So each quarter, um, one director was chosen, one writer director was chosen, and then everyone mm -hmm. else in the class filled the traditional roles on a casting on a crew. So some people were actors, some people were uh, above the line, like producers, um, co-producers, production managers. So everyone in the class got to learn what it was like to be DP or gaffer or what, whatnot. And that was pretty cool. So that they can test drive. And yeah. I think this is very important because I will tell you, um, we used to do a lot more offline education. Now mm -hmm. we've kind of focused our efforts online. Yeah. Everybody keeps saying to me, when are you going to offer another boot camp or hands-on? Because they were, I mean, they were really extraordinary in yeah. the way that we did it. Yeah. And I do believe that the online needs to be cemented with some offline. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that is the value. So, so the value of film school is really, it gives you a variety of opportunities to try different roles, to figure out where your true love lies mm -hmm. um, without having the pressure of, let's say, being a PA and having to perform on a real set 
so that you can make mistakes and you can, you can, you know, have a little bit of grace with the learning, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's really what film school gives you. I think, um, you know, there is so much pressure in the industry in terms of the hours and, you know, there, there's little room for mistakes. Right. Um, and so I think what I'm most excited about with all of the technology, because I know that you, you know, wanted to get into tech a little, which might I say is not my area, Ron. <laughs> so I'm going to fumble through answers with tech. Yeah. But what I, I'm, a, I'm the people person, but what I yeah. really um, appreciate about technology is the variety of options that we have for apps and things that can mm-hmm. take our education on the go so it can be in your back pocket when you're stuck on set. You can reference something on, you know, the iOS or Android or whatever app that you, you happen to be on. That is extraordinary because, you know, when you think back 20 years ago, nothing like that ever existed, which then really, I think, creates a sense of confidence and allows you to leapfrog ahead in a very exciting way because, you know, you're not worrying about, uh, am I going to fumble this and then, then overthink it a thousand times like mm-hmm. people do when they first start out, you know, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I do that? Or, you know, because I talk to filmmakers about stress because that's my obsession is health and wellness. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's that going down the rabbit hole, you know, um, you can drive yourself crazy especially when you're first starting out and, and you're figuring all this out the, right. for the first time. Right. So, and you question yourself, you just don't have the confidence or the foundation. Um, so I think that's where technology really can be leveraged in a variety of ways um, in the favor of a budding filmmaker. Yeah. I think one way technology has changed filmmaking it's like in the way that we view it, right? Like you talk about the different devices you can have, but not even just the devices, but even the ideology of how you share your stories. And so specifically, I'm talking about, you know, Netflix really made it the whole, mm-hmm. the binge model, like popular, like anytime a new show drops on Netflix, the entire season is there, right? And yeah. for the longest time, that was like, I thought that was like the coolest way to get everything because it's all there. You don't have to wait anymore. But lately, I've been having kind of second thoughts about it. I want to get your take on it. Like, so shows like, so streamers like HBO and Apple and almost all the rest of them, they may drop the first two, maybe three episodes, depending, mm-hmm. yeah, depending on how many total there are first. And then after that, they go weekly. And it's back to like the old school where you just have to wait a week. Yeah. And and there's something about I'm really appreciating that now. Like you have a week to to marinate in the story. You have a week to have the proverbial um, water cooler because Netflix killed the water cooler because, you know, you can't talk about it. You can't talk about a Netflix right. show because you have to make sure. Okay, have you seen it all yet? If you haven't, have you seen it all yet? You right. know, versus if you know it's a week by week thing, you can feel safe. Have you seen the latest episode? Okay, cool. And then you can start, and then you can participate in the fun of predicting what's going to happen and that kind of thing. Your take on the binge model versus dripping it out week by week. 
It's interesting with Netflix per se, because what I know to be true from a business standpoint about Netflix is that A, they're visionary and B, they really pay attention to analytics. Right. So in my mind, um, every decision Netflix makes is not random. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very thoughtful and it's very analytically based. Right. And um, so I would say that the, the advantage to that, to the binging, um, is that you know, you have the satisfaction of seeing it all. You could watch it with somebody. If, if you're traveling and you know that you're going to be gone for a while, you can definitely get certain shows in. Or if you want to reference them for a particular upcoming project, it's really nice to be able to have it all there. So you can say, oh my gosh, in episode four, I loved, you know, that lighting or whatever. Right. Um, I, I think from a keeping people coming back, and, and my, my long answer to this is I think each streaming platform um, has its own genius. And I've really thought about that because, thank goodness, I got your questions a little bit in <laughs> advance so I could really analyze those. Yeah. Otherwise, I would be on the spot. Yeah. But I think Netflix is visionary and they're incredibly analytical. And that's not to say that the other platforms aren't because I think they all are, but I would say that that's Netflix's strongest suit. Mm -hmm. I think um, HBO has been really interesting in the way that they've been test driving a number of um, different, I, different things. For mm -hmm. example, going all the way back to pay-per-view, I mean, now HBO has decreased barriers by doing so that you don't have to have, you know, cable anymore to watch it. Right. Um, I think the quality of the shows on both Netflix and HBO are really extraordinary. Um, I think, so HBO, in my mind, has a vast library because they have the Warner Brothers library. But they, right. but they also have done really high quality content of their own that is, is rivaling, and, and Netflix as well, you know, huge studios, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it's been interesting how they bundle, and I got to look at my notes on this, but I think they bundled um, uh, Discovery. Yeah, dis yeah dis Discovery recently bought Warner Media, And so yeah. I don't know, if, I don't know if the two platforms are combined yet, but I think it's, it's probably going to happen where you'll be able to happen. access Discovery related shows on HBO. On, on HBO Plus or Max. Max. HBO Max, right. So, yeah. So I think, um, and, and as you can see, this is all changing so rapidly. Like, we really do have to keep up with it, right? But, that you know, Chernobyl su succession shows like that, oh, I mean, happen awesome. to be awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I could not wait for the next episode. So that made me want to tune in more exactly what you're talking about um disney plus was another one that that's been really interesting um with hulu and kind of how and espn and how they've done it mm -hmm. um from a business standpoint i think the bundling and so if you are not so into either superheroes or more you know um kids related stories fair. yeah related fair um, that that Hulu's had some really interesting content, but from the business standpoint, it's having these diverse pieces and then bundling mm -hmm. again. 
And um, so I believe Dope Sick was on Hulu, right? Yes, I think that was on Hulu, yeah. Okay, <clears throat> that you asked me that. I have not been able to get out of my mind. That being a nurse. Is that the one and, with Michael Keaton? Yes. I might yes. need to watch that. It's like based on a true story, isn't it? It's based on a true story, and it is crazy good acting, yeah. and the story is insane. And that was the one that um, not only did – normally when I share things with my kids, my son Miles is 20 and my daughter Kira is 24 now, and they're like, yeah, Mom, all right, maybe. you know, <laughs> I'm usually going to them for reference, like what right. do I need to watch? Right. And I said, you have got to watch this, and yeah. Miles – and I still have, we talk about it months later. And he told all of his friends, it's so disturbing mm-hmm. um, with the subtlety of of the addictive process. I think mm. it's really fascinating, and it really hits every age group. Right, right. Um, so anyway, that was my crazy uh, <laughs> surprise. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. You know, we'll see. And then it was like, wow. Um, yeah, I love it when that happens. Yeah, me too. It's so unexpected. And speaking of that, Amazon, um, I view as very unexpected. Mm-hmm. They and have some really good shows on there. They have some really good shows, and they're relatively new yeah. to to the streaming platform. And I think what's interesting about Amazon, I mean, obviously Coda, you know, um, recently for the oscar win but i think well koto is on apple are you talking about apple, oh, or apple. Amazon? are you talking about apple I'm sorry. right yeah, yeah i know there's a lot I'm of a's amazon a- apple and amazon sorry about that yeah sorry, no, 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 no. yeah i'm sure they'll <laughs> forgive amazon, tim cook will amazon forgive you yeah it's <laughs> been um very very unexpected in a similar way where they have a variety of high quality lower budget mm-hmm. um opportunities and all the way up to, you know, really big budgets. Um, and I think they're, they're making relationships and moves now that are going to be really interesting to kind of see where it goes. Yeah. So they, they appear to me to be relationship-based, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very unique. So we'll, we'll see. But all right, I've got to look so I don't get it wrong on, okay, Homecoming was great, and I watched that. Um, Which one? Re- when you say uh, Homecoming, the one uh, that the the weird so like I think sci-fi. That was with Julia, yes, Julia Homecoming. Roberts. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was good. my. That was good, and yeah. obviously marvelous, Mrs. Maisel. You know, uh, I think the other one that was very surprising to me was Reacher. Um, and I've I think heard a that lot that, about that. I, my friend's background, you know, oh. I just, that was, uh, it, and I didn't expect, that was, I kind of went in like, oh my gosh, what is this going to be like? And, right, and right. a little bit of an attitude yeah. on that show. And I found myself sucked in. So it was very well yeah. done. Yeah. It's um, it's funny, you were talking about, you mentioned Apple earlier, and like Apple's obviously like one of the newest ones on the, on the yeah. I, I forget which one. I think Apple was even after Disney Plus in terms of when they hit the scene. I think oh. so too. But I think so too. I think well, first of all, um, Apple has more money than God. So when you think about, you know, a lot of the podcasts that I've that I've listened to that, are, that talk about this kind of stuff, and a lot of the stuff that I read, 
like I'm a you know like the only newsletter I actually pay for is Puck. I don't know if you heard of it, but it's like no. they're like like all the founders of Puck are like the creme de la creme of journalists and technology, business, politics, and entertainment, and um, and so they like everyone who's who writes for them has probably has like you know, the direct phone numbers to CEOs and studio heads and studio execs, right? So like M Matt Bellany, for instance, he used to be, mm -hmm. he used to be the, um, the executive editor of Hollywood Reporter. And so he's one of the co-founders and he's like one of their main entertainment guy. All that to say is when I hear all these people talking about like the streamers and everything that's going on and they talk about how like Apple's the newest thing on the block and one of the challenges for like a Netflix, for instance, is even though Netflix is almost like a utility now because so many people like every almost every, at least in the United States, so many people have it. Yeah. And um, but, you know, in the past six or seven months, they've lost three quarters of their stock value. They are now they've announced that they've lost subscribers for the first time. They're going to start offering like these advertising base levels and it's like whereas apple could basically which is practically printing money could you know continue to spend gobsmacks amounts of money on these productions but to the point you mentioned earlier i think the quality of shows on apple like i feel like they're looking to like be like the next H hbo because like when you think mm -hmm. about an hbo show you think about like you know all the ones you mentioned, like Succession, Sopranos, um, all the ones they have coming out. You like if something's tagged HBO, it's almost like ninety percent sure thing it's going to be a really quality show. Whereas yeah. something, whereas Netflix, you know, they have their good stuff, but they put out so much stuff. A lot of it, I, a lot of it, I think is kind of garbage. But Apple, I feel like, like everything they put out is like so good, and so. I kind of feel like they, I hope they keep going. Like, I don't know. Did you ever watch Severance? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I think, hands down, one of the best premiere seasons on television. Yes. And they totally stuck the landing for the finale. And they, Yes. I think, you know, Apple's interesting because if you look at their brand, mm -hmm. um. You their know, brand as a company as a whole or the brand for their streaming platform? I think quality is inherent. Mm, yes. And I think that the streaming platform is staying true to the yes. brand. Yes. The Apple brand and is all about quality for the most part. Yeah. Quality and remaining relevant. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is very important. And I think that every business contends with hmm. is relevancy because with so many choices um you know especially it's just like so much content is being made right now and especially with the pandemic i think that people were just gobbling up content to mm -hmm. get their minds off of all the horror going on in the world and and i think that that's still the case i think that you know people uh, now we're accustomed to having so many choices oh my and gosh. i think that right and and people have this appetite for really good 
content. And I think that there will be a natural competition, but I think it's really niching out Mm -hmm. what you do best and then, you know, remaining relevant in terms of the, the business pieces for all of them, because, you know, look, Netflix, I think their global reach is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is very uh, foundational as a part of their business. Yeah. And um, so I think it's, it's the household name. And again, they've been in the game for so many years. I think that their vision and their, their global reach, you know, it's, they, you can have some losses and I think every business over time does, Right. but um, as long as, you know, they're going to be able to navigate that. I'm, yeah. I, I really am not at all concerned about Netflix because they're, they're so good at researching what the consumer wants, mm-hmm. right? And with all of this data-driven analysis. Yeah. Do you think there's anything filmmakers can learn from streamers that they can apply to their own work? Like, you know, if I'm an independent filmmaker, is there something I can learn from how the streamers do their thing? Do you think? I think, um, and I hope I'm understanding your question properly because I want to make sure I'm answering it uh, in the right vein. Yeah. I think... um, Everybody, every filmmaker needs to understand that they are an entrepreneur, number one. Mm. And so I think, um, you know, even if you're working for somebody or, or working on a, a, you know, series regularly, um, I think that, you know, you're an entrepreneur. And I think what the streaming platforms do really well is again creating exciting relevant timely authentic vulnerable stories that people relate to and i think that filmmakers can absolutely um take that away i think they're excellent at niching themselves bundling things together and filmmakers could could really learn a lot from that whether you're just bundling a kit with your rate or you know um whatever whatever you can bundle Mm -hmm. or create that is an alternative revenue stream for yourself irrespective of the industry right Mm -hmm. um and then i think marketing is so much of everything because the more um noise there is in the marketplace more options um how do you stand out Mm. and i think that this is the most important thing for filmmakers is really how do you stand out understanding what is your particular genius and where do you shine yeah yeah no i actually like the way you answered it because like typically when i have ask that question or the way I've thought about it is from a creative standpoint, like what can filmmakers learn in terms of how you roll out content or in terms of how you present content? Mm-hmm. Like, do you, do you do a binge thing like Netflix or do you, do you drip it out? Um, but I love your answer in terms of filmmakers considering themselves thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs. And I would hazard, I guess a lot of filmmakers probably don't think of themselves like that. Like they want, they want to make films. They want to make movies. They want to be the next whatever, yep. and they don't think that you know the film business is also a business, right? 
it's a business. And I think having debt from personal projects, um, which every filmmaker does, right? You've got to get something on your reel and so you're going to create it, but there's always some debt associated with that. It's kind of like the more debt you have, the more burden you have, or, or if you purchase, mm-hmm. you know, a ton of gear and you've got that gear to pay off and then you've right. got to get that gear on projects. And are you really picking what's best for the creative or are you just getting your gear on to get it on something so that it gets paid off? Mm-hmm. So there's a fine line and a uh, dangerous territory with debt and, and for businesses too. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's the risk reward debt ratio, mm-hmm. I think, because sometimes you need to leverage yourself into some debt that to, to get to the next level or to launch. Right. Yeah. But I think it's, re- it's really understanding from the get go. Okay. I am willing to take this risk, but what have I projected out, mm-hmm. you know, in order to how, how to pay for it. And I think that people get stuck in their, in their boxes. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, okay, I'm, I'm a filmmaker and I create content and this is what I do. Um, but there are a variety of ways or hobbies that you may love that can also be additional revenue streams um, if there's flexibility with time. So I think it's the diversification. Um, if, if there's your main income, because we all know that with inflation and everything right now, everything's so expensive. So it's like, how right. you know, you, you can't earn enough money as a business or as a filmmaker right now, right? And so it's how do you get creative to um, figure out either in partnership with others or on your own to diversify and just create some multiple revenue streams for yourself. Because I think that that is what the streamers have done really, really well to get back to your original question in the, in their bundling, right. In their bundling, because we know the value of online content, but it's, it's, how is it um, bundled and how is it? And for us, as a business, right? Like people have an all access um, expectation. And that's one of the big reasons that we rebranded was to simplify and to, you know, make it easier for everybody and to meet the expectation of all access. And um, so that's great. But now, obviously I want people forever because I feel like learning should be forever. So then- like like the streamers, then you have to remain exciting and relevant in the content that you do. But I would argue that content is not everything. And I've been a big fan of the community forever. And I think, you know, a big part of what I, I'm passionate about is, okay, we love filmmakers we want to have an extraordinary community of filmmakers and we want to make sure that filmmakers have a long and healthy life. Because I think that that is something where, you know, it's impossible to be creative if you're feeling ill or, or, you know, your, your joints are killing you because you ruined your back from operating or you've 
you have not stretched properly. There's so many health and wellness things that impact filmmakers in particular, especially editors, because they're sitting all day long. Okay. Um, I, I, I know the smart ones have standing desks and they're, they're on a treadmill and doing whatever. But I think that the wellness part of it um, is, is so important because I think people don't pay attention to their levels of stress which we know impacts the body over time, the hours, the lack of sleep, the, the lack of great nutrition. I mean, all of these things. Um, and it's, it's my dream that filmmakers will understand that that is where the focus needs to be as much as learning the craft. Because mm -hmm. I think this myopic, you know, I, I just have to understand the craft um, is only a part of, you know, anyone as a business person. Yeah. You know, when you, when you think about uh, doing filmmaking, the filmmaking business being a business, there are a lot of filmmakers who do uh, essentially sell their services as filmmakers. Like, so maybe yeah. they, they want to be a feature film director, but in the meantime, they shoot uh, small commercial gigs or they shoot weddings. Like when I first started, I shot weddings and then, I transferred to commercial work. Um, so what, but one thing that often happens is in order to pay the bills and to continue subsisting, mm -hmm. the thing that they were passionate about now becomes quote unquote work. And their passion can sometimes be drained because and you burn out. You burn, you out, burn out because you, you take, you take all the jobs you need to take in order to pay the bills. And they're not necessarily the jobs that you would want to do. So what advice do you give to filmmakers who are kind of dealing with that, where they've kind of lost, maybe they're losing some of their passion for filmmaking because all the filmmaking they do is stuff that they're not, that doesn't excite them. You know, they're shooting yeah. videos for the mom and pop store down the, down the street for Yelp or whatever, because that's what's paying the bills. But what they really want to do is this other thing that's, more fun and creative, but no one's paying for. Understood the conundrum. And I think every person that I know has been there. Mm. Um, I think it's really getting crystal clear on your goals. Mm. And this um, gets into a little bit of coaching. Mm -hmm. um, but I think everything begins with intention. Mm. And the way to get a roadmap to the end goal where you desire to be is to understand your goals in a very specific way. Yeah. So um, when I used to do life coaching with people, and this was my favorite exercise of all time, there's life coaches use the, this wheel. Hmm. And if you think of a wheel of all the areas of your life, and so there's physical, emotional, you know, mental, like intellectual, spiritual relationships, you know, you name it, every part of your, um, your life. And you draw in to determine the happiness, like you shade in, you know, where are you? You can rate it from zero to, to 10. And so you see, once you draw it around, if your wheel is really imbalanced, mm -hmm then those are the areas that need the most focus. So let's take career as being 
that one area of the wheel. Let's just pretend for this discussion that you're doing great on all the other pieces, but career is really the area that you need to work on. Then it's breaking it down in a very specific matter of what is your career ambition. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, I do this in business too. It's really crazy, but I always work backward. Hmm. So I think the mistake that, that, um, a lot of people make is you try to see the road forward instead of working backward. Hmm. So if, if you look at the tip of the business funnel, that the highest offering and then kind of leapfrog backward, it, it helps you to see, or at least it does me all of the steps in between or the areas that you're missing. Right. And so it's getting crystal clear on that. And it's also setting um, very specific timelines for yourself. So I think that we get so stuck on money hmm. and, oh my God, if I don't make that much, then I can't pay my bills. And, and that our brains go down the rabbit hole of fear, right? I, I have to take this because e even though I don't want to take this job because I can't pay my bills and, and that fear doesn't allow creativity and expansion in the brain when the minute that that train's left the station you're just done right yeah, yeah. so um i think it's knowing and i know this sounds crazy but it's really knowing when to draw your line of the job that you're saying yes to and the jobs that you're you, that you're going to say no to mm -hmm. and in saying no to those jobs it frees you up for other opportunities to create another area of income to fill that. Hmm. So for example, maybe it's as simple as increasing your rate and, and maybe it's really valuing yourself and your expertise as a wedding videographer a little bit more, mm -hmm. or maybe it's, it's packaging it and having like, you know, Disney plus does with Hulu and ESPN and all these things. Right. And then having, you can have an a la carte that's going to be a lot more expensive or you can have it for this rate. But I think the biggest mistake that I see is that people undervalue themselves mm -hmm. and their, their time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I definitely see that happening a lot. And I think that's something that I think filmmakers for the longest time, need to do there's this one very prominent um wedding filmmaker his name is john goolsby i don't know if you've ever crossed this path or not but i have not yeah he has i mean you probably would i mean he's more on the wedding and event side he does a lot of corporate mm -hmm. work he's been in the business for well over 30 years I, I mean i think he was in the business 30 years when i first met him that was 20 years ago so who knows <laughs> he's been in a long time but he was extremely popular studio he's done work all over the world for Fortune 500 companies and celebrity weddings and whatnot. And whenever he was teaching on like the wedding event videographer seminar circuit, his challenge to uh, wedding videographers and event videographers, he would tell them, double your rates overnight. And people would think he was joking. He And he was absolutely serious. He would say, well, when you go home today, I want you to double your prices. Whatever you charge now, charge double. And he, he always he always would tell the story that every now and then, like a, a person would come up to him a year later and say, hey, John, I did your thing. I was scared. And it worked. Like, 
Right. Someone and I, you wouldn't and think, I, and then from there on, their prices were now double. And I think here's the thing: you either feel comfortable doubling, knowing that you're going to deliver the quality, yeah, or you feel comfortable saying no, or or you know something's got to give on that triangle, yeah, because otherwise you stay on on the wheel of misery and then you become a resentful burned out human and that's actually really hard to untangle Mm -hmm. and i think what people don't realize and this again this is my pure passion but our energy precedes us Mm -hmm. into anything and so just walking into a room we as humans can tell wow that person's really pissed off or they're frustrated oh yeah or right and and on set, like, oh my God, they're rushed. I'm not going to ask them anything. Um, our energy precedes us. And if you have a negative burned out mindset, then you are going to work so much less because you're going to be very off-putting right. to everybody around you and, and not even realize it, right? But everything's going to bug you. It's just that, you know, that, that, yeah. <laughs> and so to get out of that, I think what I always tell people is set time limits, set clear goals, hmm. have a buddy or somebody that you're checking in with. Because if you have to be fully responsible for your own accountability, it's deadlines slip, timelines slip, you know, get a mentor. And and I'm I'm really so serious about this part because I've had mentors my entire life. Mm-hmm. And when I first started this, this business, you know, in 2010, it was terrifying. Mm. And, you know, I was using my own money to, to do this and sponsors at that time. And, and it was very much a, you know, bootstrap operation. And I think that if it were not for the mentors and I was in a women entrepreneurial group called mm. Starpreneur, mm. but they held me accountable and it was a group of very powerful women, but, but they asked me like, what have you done since the last time? And what steps have you taken? And it's kind of like a workout buddy yeah. and, and the mentorship, um, you know, you can ask as a Christmas gift, I mean, or a, a birthday gift or whatever, you know, because I, I can hear, oh my gosh, how could I ever afford that or whatever, but right. it's the best money that you've ever been gifted. Yeah. Um, because it, it expands your thinking. It expands your perspective. It's somebody believing in you, giving you a detailed roadmap. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually did that. I hired a business coach before um, Shane did the Illumination Experience Tour. Um, It was really interesting. She was a curriculum expert, and she helped both of us design the entire curriculum for that educational tour that Shane did in so many cities that NZ produced way back when. But I I said, we're not we're not curriculum experts. And I wanted to be so certain that the value was delivered to all of the participants in all the cities. And, and we did that. And Shane was so confident rolling out on that because he felt like he was hitting all learning styles. She went through everything and it, and it was the questions and the difference in perspective that really made that 
extraordinary instead of just good. Mm-hmm. It would have always been good and maybe even on the very good, but I think it became extraordinary because of Jane Warlow and her coaching and her curriculum input on that. And, and we're forever grateful. And, and I thought, how can I pay for this? Like I haven't even, you know, we haven't even launched this thing yet. And I'm already right. having to come up with all the money for the coaching. Right. <laughs> and, but I had to get out of my own way and in thought process. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'll ask her if I can finance it. And I think it's like getting creative in what you can do and, and ways that make it work for you and always ask for a creative solution. I think that's the other thing in business. I do this all the time. Like, well, maybe, you know, we can't necessarily do that, but what can we do instead of just seeing the no? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I always enjoy these conversations with you because it always good. Me too. Yeah, yeah. It um, sounds great. Um, yeah, a couple of questions I want to ask you before I have to let you go. I'm about, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, and you may have already, these are the, my final questions. One question I, I didn't ask you, and since you're probably going to be the last live guest, not that my other guests are going to be dead, but I think, my, for, I think for my next episode, I'm going to pull from my archives. So you, um, I didn't ask you the question I normally ask all my guests, which is your earliest movie memory. Oh, that that's that, so that had a profound impact on you. Okay, this is horrible because I don't know the name of the movie. Uh-huh. Um, but my grandmother uh-huh. took me to a movie, and that's my earliest movie memory. Mm. And I cannot remember the name of that movie. Um, but I just remember how special it was to go with her to mm-hmm. the movies. Um, I would say... But um, my family was uh, were musicians and artists and um, not movie buffs, which mm-hmm. was really interesting growing up. But I do remember that they loved the classics, like mm-hmm. The Wizard of Oz or, right. you know, really. So I would say that those were my um, fondest childhood memories of mm-hmm. you know sitting down with my family and watching i i was dorothy in the wizard of oz in high school so <laughs> right. i think that 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 movie in particular um has such a significance for me and and even watching it now um, i know they've remastered it and done everything um i think the story is so extraordinary and i mm. think that um, I was in the Academy Museum recently, and they had a lot of The Wizard of Oz there, and it was just so neat to yeah. see the some of the original, you know, um, costumes, and it just to be able to kind of get up close and personal. So I would say that that's kind of my my favorite. The Sound of Music was one that I watched um, with my mother, and again, these are, but that was her favorite movie, and so I think um, when you're little, you kind of you know, defer to what your parents like a lot right, of the time. Right. Um, so anyway, it was, and my dad was totally into like Alfred Hitchcock and suspense mm-hmm. and like rear window. That's and, my favorite and, Hitchcock film. Yeah. And yeah. he, he loved that like murder mystery suspense and my mother was musical. So it's so funny. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's funny that you mentioned uh, Wizard of Oz and Sound of Music because I had a crush on Dorothy and I had yeah. a crush on, I can't remember her name in Wizard of Oz. I, mean, I can't remember her name in Sound of Music. It was the one who. It was the one who was Angela Cartwright. Um, who was who played Penny on Lost in Space in the original okay. Lost in Space? Yep. She was yep. also in Sound of Music. In Sound of Music. And uh, I remember the first time I ever saw Sound of Music, I was a kid and my mom was watching it. And yep. all I remember is seeing Penny from <laughs> from Lost in Space Lost was on it, space. and that's what kind of roped me in. Yeah. But but it's funny. Um, my book came out this week my Dungeons and Dragons book. And I talk about the effect, the impact that media had me, had on me as, as a kid. Like I had all these crushes on white girls growing up when I was a little boy and, yeah. and the impact that media has on what we determine as what's considered beauty and whatnot. And so I have this chapter where I go through all the, the white girls and white women on television that I had a crush on when I was a kid. Um, oh. And Penny from Sound of Music. I'm um, Penny from Lost in Space, who's Angela Cartwright, yeah. who was also in Sound of Music. Was, I love that. Uh, and I can't wait to uh, – congratulations on the book. That's a huge oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been quite a journey. It's been quite – and it's funny because there's a lot of movie – there's a lot of movie and television pop culture references in there, some mm -hmm. more overt than others. Sometimes I'm making them – because I do them so much throughout my life, I don't even know that I'm doing them. So I think a lot, there are a lot of fun movie references. I've thought about making a contest where I would go through and count them all and give a prize to whoever finds every single pop culture reference that I make in the book, subtle That's or otherwise. That's so much fun, Ron. I bet you should. And I, can't, I really can't wait to read it because I think that, you know, the accomplishment of a book and you're so understated with with all of your talents but i think um that is a huge deal yeah it's it's it's, it's a really really big deal to to get through a book yeah and I yeah keep saying i'm gonna write one one day too but oh i think that would be an amazing book i haven't gotten there quite yeah. yet it's on right. my list yeah um the last question I want to ask is, and I don't know if you addressed this or not with your, we, we mentioned Reacher, but do you, what's your guilty pleasure television show or movie that you watch? Do you have one? I don't think that I have one mm -hmm. um, because I'm constantly watching. I mean, Reacher could be one. Mm -hmm. Um I think I watched Lincoln Lawyer a little bit okay. and because I is it is um, one of the Ryans in that like Ryan Reynolds or Ryan Gosling? Yes. In and that I, one? I, I think I, I saw it just for a little bit because mm -hmm. um, my mom, my mother-in-law lives with us and she loves that show. And so <laughs> I, I, you know, there's one TV and so we all like right. take turns about, okay, whose night is it to pick? <laughs> right. And um, so everyone's, I, I would say, okay, guilty pleasure. I love any of the shows like Chip and Joanna Games, you know, any of those remodel right. house shows. Like when I need to turn off my brain, um, love it or list it, that type of thing, uh -huh. um, because it allows me to not think. 
and mm-hmm. just to get wrapped up in like the before and after and oh my gosh and who has you know the most creativity and do i like the colors they picked i mean it's just a totally fun artsy kind of dreamy yeah. thing yeah yeah so um I just checked. Uh, neither of the Ryans are in the TV show Lincoln Lawyer. Lincoln uh, Lawyer. Yeah, no, I think I, I think I was thinking of the movie with Matthew McConaughey. Um, yeah, he's in the movie. But you, you're talking about the TV show Lincoln Lawyer. I'm talking about the TV show because yeah, that on was Netflix. on the other night. And it's I was on Netflix. Like, yeah. Who was? Yeah, I did watch. Um, oh my God! What is the Sandra Bullock movie with Ryan <sighs> Reynolds? Uh, the proposal the proposal yes the I proposal is that, yes is that right it came out like 10 years ago or something like that yeah yes okay. that's ryan reynolds that ryan reynolds yes. that we watched uh last night and my god that's a fun crazy. movie that's so much fun i haven't yeah. seen that in years that so. is a fun movie um, yeah the ryans are always present yes <laughs> Well, this has been great. Let's not wait five years before we talk again. I definitely want, especially now I'm, I'm back in the LA area. But yeah, we fun. This was great. And um, the uh, the website's filmmakersacademy, right? dot com. Filmmakersacademy dot com. Yeah, yep. that's nice. And um, we're you know we'd love to have you join us. So yeah. we're we're really excited, and uh, I'm just so honored to thank you so much for inviting me for you know really making me think very hard about <laughs> uh, a lot of your great questions that's yeah. the best thing about interviewing with you because your questions are always so unique and they really require thought yeah at least uh and a little bit of research on my part and i would like <laughs> to thank my team and my daughter kira yeah. who did help me i was like okay women what is your take on this you know yeah what I mean? Because I'm always about getting a number of perspectives. So David and Kira, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> shout out to David and Kira for sure. David and Kira. Yep. Well, um, so it it was such a pleasure, Ron. Yeah, me and too. Um, I would I would just like to end with everybody to say that don't forget to to do whatever little things fill you up. You know, I think that there's so much um, sad sadness in the world sad Mm. news and um i would go so far as to say evil that's kind of lurking yeah and um i think it's so important to keep ourselves positive to keep our minds positive um some days it feels overwhelming and, and kind of helpless i'm sure for a lot of people with all the gun violence and everything going on yeah and um so i just find things to you know, fill your, your cup because, um, and I do that with a little morning routine, mm-hmm. um, where I meditate, exercise, stretch, you know, whatever it is that works for you. But this is where this wellness and health really comes in yeah. so that your whole day is set up for success. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much, Lydia. Absolutely. Have a wonderful evening, Ron. You too. Give my best to Shane. I will do. And to your beautiful family, too. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to give a huge thanks to Lydia for joining me on the show. You can find a link to the Filmmakers Academy in the show notes or on the blog post for this episode at provideocoalition.com. 
As always, Crossing the 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media and is part of Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Ron Dawson. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Runner. That's Runner with an O. And you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Runner. Follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at Simply Pro Video. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks... I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. See you in two weeks.